Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are concluding our brief series this morning on godly wisdom while reminding ourselves that this is not the end of it, for wisdom is to be a pursuit that never ends. And since all wisdom dwells in Christ, we've made the point several times, and I'm making it again, that ultimately a pursuit of wisdom is indeed a pursuit of Christ. It is union with Christ. If you remember that series we did some time ago. It is united with Christ, abiding in him, and that is where we find true wisdom. Now, we often say that we do not like rules, or sometimes people will say rules are made to be broken. But on other times, we do like rules and often even desire them, some more so than others, of course. Recently, I've heard multiple people say something like, you know, I'm just a rule follower. Uh, It's ingrained in them that they go by the rules, even though sometimes they view the rules as being insignificant, they decide they're going to follow them anyway. Rules help us know where we stand. That is whether or not we are doing right or wrong. It's easy to check off the list. Am I driving too fast? Well, the objective standard is right there in front of my eyes. I can look at the odometer and I can tell whether or not I am exceeding the speed limit, as long as I know what that speed limit is, so I know whether I am following the rules or not. Well, dare I bring up another example? The greatest debate and frustration of our time, the masks, versus the non-mask debate, a debate that has somehow taken on spiritual dimensions and is dividing churches. I read an article, perhaps you did this week, of a local church that is in fact mandating masks to be worn in worship. And one of the pastors that was interviewed for that article assured us that Jesus would wear a mask. I mean, what would Jesus do was the question, of course. And his answer, Jesus would wear a mask. Now, I tend to think that if I'm attending synagogue with Jesus, masks are probably not the greatest spiritual debate that we're going to be talking about. Now, I am not here to dive into that debate. I'm probably already angered some of you. That's not my point. My point is simply that for a time, there was not a rule. We were all expected to make wise decisions based on the information that we were hearing. However, because people were making different decisions, a rule was enacted. Now we have a law, and that law says we must wear a mask when we are in public and we cannot socially distance, though, of course, churches have been exempt from that rule. And so now it's easy. We know whether or not we are following the law. It is not up to each individual any longer. There is a law, a rule in place that we are expected to follow. But the fact is that throughout life, there simply can't be a rule, there can't be a law about everything. 
There can't be a law that covers every single moral or ethical decision that you or I are faced with. There are just too many variables, and that is why we need wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take general principles and apply them in our lives to particular situations in ways that then avoid evil and accomplish good. It is applied morality. The ability to govern ourselves, discipline ourselves, using sound knowledge and reasoning. But as I mentioned last week, this means that we are going to come to differences of convictions and opinions about what is wise or unwise. In other words, both of us can be full out on a pursuit of wisdom and in some cases come up with different choices. That's how difficult this prospect is. There is no neat scorecard to gauge our success. This is not a true-false quiz. And so we have to apply wisdom the best we can and then give grace and forgiveness to others when they seek to apply wisdom and do it differently. So this morning, I'm going to look at three major areas of our lives and seek to apply godly wisdom in each of these areas. Again, my application is going to be general because I'm trying to to talk to everyone But your task and mine individually is to take the general wisdom that we hear and see in this text and apply it to our current circumstances. All of this is going to come, again, from the wisdom of Solomon, this time from Proverbs chapter 6. And I'm going to keep, uh, I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to read three different sections, but we're going to read them point by point, not all at once. So today we are talking about the practice of wisdom from Proverbs chapter 6. And the first section, verses 1 through 5, is on financial wisdom. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the, land, into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. So first this morning, we are talking about our need for financial wisdom. These first five verses of chapter 6 are certainly not an exhaustive topic of finances, but they do bring up the discussion. And again, you notice it is Solomon passing on wisdom to his son, my son, and then he is teaching him, reminding us that we have that same responsibility. So you might say to yourself, you know what, I already have financial wisdom, and many of you do. But that does not mean you don't need to pass that on to others, particularly your children and your grandchildren. So while you may understand what we're talking about, your task, your application, might be passing it on to others. Now, I know all of this seems a bit odd, especially given the fact that last week I said, I do not like when people say, all preachers care about is money. And now here is my first point of the next sermon having said that and it is about financial wisdom 
But I am not talking today about giving to the church specifically, though that is a wise use and biblical use of money. I will say that you have done a phenomenal job during this pandemic of remembering to give to the church. Whether you've been here in person or whether you've not, you have done a great job, so much so that we are slightly ahead of budget at this time of year, which we are usually not. So thank you for remembering to give even when you haven't been here in person. Now you might be surprised to learn that Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, some people who have sort of studied this say that he talked about money more than he did any other subject. And one of the reasons he did that is because he knew that the way we view and the way we use money is not merely a financial issue. I mean, Jesus didn't talk about money a lot because he was a financial advisor. He talked about money because he knew that it wasn't just a financial issue, it indeed is a spiritual issue. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. On another occasion, he said, you cannot serve both God and money. One or the other will master you, and you cannot serve them both. So the wise use of finances is an important topic. When I do premarital counseling, it takes up one of the five sessions that I have with the couple. One out of five sessions is completely taken up with finances. And the reason I devote so much time to it is because we come from different backgrounds. We are taught differently about how to use money. But most of us assume that everybody thinks about it the way we do. And therefore, when you get two people together, a young couple that are coming from different backgrounds, assuming that the other thinks the same way they do about money and never really talking about it, then when they get together in a marriage that is sure to be uh, full of obstacles and a powder keg of discussions because they decide and find out that they think differently about money. So every person, every couple needs financial wisdom. Most marriage counselors say that the top two problems in marriage in one or the other order are finances and communication. So this is clearly an issue we need to tackle. Now in Proverbs chapter six, the particular passage here is dealing with one aspect of finances and that is dealing with debt. Now even in using that phrase, you immediately see how contemporary this issue is. For the debts of the American family and the American nation are a heavy load to bear, to be sure. Many have simply uh, resigned themselves to be in debt. That's just the way they live life. I want to get what I want. I want to get it when I want it. I don't want to wait. And therefore, I'm going to buy it on credit. And I will pay for it later if I pay for it all. And in fact, some people even say, well, I'll just leave it to my kids to settle the score after I'm gone, which is not a very good legacy to leave. Now, in this passage specifically, it is dealing with the signing of debts for others. That is the co-signing for someone else. That's what Solomon is talking about here. He's talking to his son and saying, do not get yourself bound to your neighbor by signing for their debts so that if they do not or cannot pay for them, you will. Now, most of us don't do this anymore. You might be in a business relationship where you do this and that's basically required in some business relationships. 
but we certainly do it as parents sometimes, signing for our kids or bailing out our children. And by children here, I mean adult children. Adult children who should be on their own and responsible by now, and yet they keep getting in financial trouble and we keep bailing them out. They overspend, we give, and then we're surprised to find out that they overspend again. Now, I know what you think when you do this. You think, I don't want them to suffer. Or if there are children, your grandchildren involved, then you say to yourself, I cannot stand to see my grandchildren suffer. And so you bail out your adult children for the sake of your grandchildren, which is not a good practice. What you need to do is allow your children to suffer and learn so that then they can leave the proper financial legacy to your grandchildren. And that is a better gift that you can give them than giving them money to bail them out for overspending. Now, we certainly see this in our government as well, but that is a subject that is beyond our scope today. So if you find yourself in debt, you need to deal with it wisely, or the debt will deal with you. Again, as Jesus said, one will be your master, and if you are beholden to money, then it will master you. I mean, look at the terminology in this text. Verse 2, snared and caught. Both of these speak of the bondage that comes with debt. Verse 3, Solomon says, save yourself. And he's clearly not talking about spiritual salvation there. He's talking about save yourself from the dilemma of debt. And then in verses 4 and 5, there are illustrations used to speak of the urgency of the situation. You need to deal with this quickly. Now, let me be quick to add that when I talk about debt, I am not talking about your mortgage, which very few of us could buy a house without. So long as your mortgage payment is within your budget and given the low interest rates that we now have and the rising home values, a mortgage is often a good investment. Neither am I talking about auto loans. Again, as long as you are not upside down in your car because you trade too frequently. I'm not even talking about school loans. I understand that those are often necessary. I remember talking to a couple that I was doing the premarital counseling for. We were in that session on finances. And uh, I was beginning to explain to him how we had to be very careful about debt and not going into debt. And the guy just looked totally confused and and looked like he he wasn't understanding a word I was saying. And so I finally asked him. I was like, what are you thinking? And he's like, you don't understand. He he was in, he's an optologist. He's an eye doctor. I knew I wouldn't be able to say that word. (laughs) And at the time, he was in school to become an eye doctor. And so he said to me, you don't understand. I mean, I have to take loans out to go through school. By the time I graduate school, I'm going to have about $200,000 in school loan debt. And so we just moved on to another topic and said, forget it. So I'm not talking about any of those things. What I'm talking about is consumer debt or what we often call credit card debt. This is the type of debt we must deal with and deal with it wisely. So how do we do that? How do we have financial wisdom specifically in dealing with this kind of debt? Well, first of all, I would encourage you to live on a budget, which sometimes people don't like. They say that's restrictive. I want to be free to spend my money however I want. And what you don't understand is living on a budget frees you to spend your money the way you want. I mean, you expect the church to live on a budget, 
We annually uh, estimate what kind of money we're going to have coming in, and then we divide it out into the various ministries and things that we have to pay for, and we strive to live according to that budget. Every family should do the same thing, no matter how much money you make. Occasionally, I'll hear people, I will hear people say, well, when I get to this level of income, then I'll live on a budget. No, you won't. You need to live on a budget now, no matter what your income is. Tracy and I both have accounting degrees, and therefore we sometimes argue about who gets to do the budget. I know that's not the norm in most houses. I know that what you need to do in your home is choose which person knows more about this and would do better at it, and they need to be the one that works the budget. Secondly, you need to pay down debt, which simply means this needs to be a priority. The more you can put down, the faster you can pay it off, and the more money you will save for yourself in the process to be able to use on other things. But you've got to do this intentionally or it won't get done. Just paying the minimum payment each month is not going to get it accomplished. To accelerate the paying down of debt then, the third step is to cut out frills in your life. There are many things in our lives that are good. We enjoy them. We like to go out to eat. We like various forms of entertainment. We enjoy cable television. But all of these are frills that can and should be cut out for a time period if you are in debt. And I know people don't like this part, but that's why they're in the situation they're in. Because they're buying all these things and they are in debt. And then ultimately to get out of debt and stay out of debt, you need to learn, learn to live on or within your means. And again, you can't say, well, when I get that promotion, when I get that raise, then I can live within my means. Chances are, if you're not living within what you make now, you will not then either. Now again, there are other areas of financial wisdom that we could discuss, but since this text dealt with debt, that's where I have remained. But you certainly do need to apply financial wisdom to the making of money, to the giving of money, to the investing of money, to the spending of money, every aspect of finances. And if you don't have the wisdom to do it, then you either need to get it, that is you need to learn, or you need to find someone who can help you, even if you have to pay someone to help you financially. This might surprise some of you, but I have never in my life torn down an engine, fixed it, and put it back together. You know why? Because I have no idea how to do that. And it would be an absolute mess if I tried to do that. Therefore, when something is wrong with the engine in one of our cars, I pay a mechanic, oftentimes more than I think I should, but I pay a mechanic to do that for me because I don't know what I'm doing. That may be the case for, with you when it comes to finances. You need to get some help so that someone else can help you get your financial situation straightened out. So either get financial wisdom or find someone who can help you. And this is not primarily about saving for retirement. I'm not trying to help you this morning grow your retirement nest egg. This is a spiritual issue. And it frees us up when we are out of debt. It frees us up to invest in the kingdom of God and not feel guilt and shame about being in debt and uh, continuing to rack it up. Debt, Solomon says, is crippling. Not just financially, but emotionally and even spiritually. All right, let's move on to the second aspect. This is what I'm calling vocational wisdom from verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. 
Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Vocational wisdom. Now in these verses, Solomon is giving us a lesson, multiple lessons from the animal kingdom and from one of the smallest members of the animal kingdom, the ant. Now in Georgia, when I lived down there, we had fire ants. Are you familiar with what those are? They haven't made their way, well, they have come into Tennessee, not everywhere in Tennessee, but they have migrated to Tennessee, though not in the quantity that you will find them in Georgia. So they were always in my yard in Georgia, and they would build these mounds of dirt so you knew exactly where they were. And if you were unfortunate enough to step on those mounds of dirt, you would know it because they would swarm on your leg and begin biting you and you would be running away, swatting them off of you as quickly as you could. And so we tried to get rid of them. There was two basic ways to do it. Number one, they made some poison. I think I still have some in my garage that I don't have to use here. But you sprinkle that on the mound, they think it's food, they take it back down into the mound, hopefully killing the vast majority of the ants. The only problem was it didn't. It killed some, but not all. The other way to do it, which I'm not sure is the right way, nor do I even think it's legal, but it worked. You get a stick and you poke a hole in the mound and you pour gasoline down it, and that would kill them. Again, I'm not, I'm not advocating that, just saying it worked. But neither one of them worked totally because in a day or two, there was gonna be another mound. Really close to the one you got rid of, they were just gonna migrate somewhere else and they were gonna start all over again. So Solomon uses the ant, not the fire ant specifically, but Solomon uses the ant as a model of an industrious animal. That is, you can't stop the ant. They are hardworking, and they are going to build that other mound whether you like it or not. There is actually no way to totally eradicate fire ants from your yard because they are so industrious. Now, when I talk about vocation or work, most of us immediately think about what we do for a job. That is what we get paid to do. But of course, not all of us are working for money. Some are retired, and some are in a stage of life where school is effectively their job. So when I talk about vocational wisdom this morning, I'm not confining that to what you get paid to do. I'm simply talking about whatever it is you do. In your volunteer work, if you're a stay-at-home mom, in your job as a career, all of these things are applicable. And since the gospel affects our whole life, it should impact all of these areas as well. The gospel doesn't change us just on Sundays. It's to be impactful on every day. Now, we actually used to be known for this, right? You know the phrase, the Protestant work ethic. Years ago, that was a common phrase. The idea basically means that there, there was a connection among Protestants between their worship of God and their work during the week. There was a connection between the spiritual and the secular. These were not divided. That is, going to church impacted everything else. So your faith transformed the rest of your life, including the way you worked. 
And therefore, their faith drove them to be good and hard workers. This was instilled in me not only as a child, but it was instilled in me when I went to seminary. And I'm sure I've told you this before, but when I went to seminary, they have a work uh, placement office there. They help us get jobs while we are in seminary, whether it's be in a church or whether it's a secular job. They helped in both, in both avenues. But when we went in there and put down our information and told them what we were interested in doing, they always gave us this little spiel about how we needed to be good employees. Because they said to us, you're not only representing the Lord, and you're not only representing our seminary, but you're going to impact all of the students that come behind you. Well, what do they mean by that? Well, what they meant was that if, I, if they help me get a job somewhere, and I'm a poor worker, that employer is going to think twice about going to the cemetery next time to get another worker. And so they would tell us, how you do your job is going to affect whether students who come behind you can get a job at all. And that kind of mentality uh, was imparted to us and instilled to us. And maybe it has been to you as well. Maybe it's in your first boss. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe some other caring adult. It just doesn't come naturally. Someone must teach it to us, which again is what Solomon is trying to do. But when it's not intentionally done, we arrive at the place where I think we can say we are now, and that is most employers probably couldn't tell a difference between a committed Christian who is working as unto the Lord and an unbeliever who is working for themselves. So applying vocational wisdom begins with our attitude, our thoughts. In other words, do we realize that our work comes under the Lordship of Jesus Christ no matter what we do? Not just if we work in a church, but no matter where we work. Solomon makes the point that the ant doesn't have anyone looking over its shoulder. I mean, there is no, there is no overseer constantly telling the ant what to do. Rather, he works by instinct. And we ought to work by the new instincts we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Now again, I, I have to clarify because working hard doesn't necessarily mean physical labor. You can work hard mentally. You can work hard in a creative job that uses your mind, but it's still working hard. And I often say to people, I think you ought to work smart, not hard. That doesn't mean that I'm advocating laziness. I'm simply saying you, you ought to be able to use the resources, the technology, the tools that are available to help you work whatever you do in a smart way. And obviously this needs to be balanced because we can go to the opposite extreme and become workaholics. But all of this means we must also watch what we say about ourselves and what we say to others. Meaning, do we spend our time at work grumbling and complaining about our jobs? Or does our performance change when the boss is not looking? Perhaps this pandemic and the rising unemployment that it has brought has reminded us that we ought to be thankful for the job we have and thankful that God has given us the gifts to do it. But certainly along with attitude, there is also effort, which is what Solomon is getting at in the second half of this section. Are you going to be a lazy sluggard, sleeping late and uh, going to bed late and sleeping late, laying on the couch all day, binging shows? <laughs> now, wait a minute. Now you've crossed the line. I mean, if you hadn't done it before, you've crossed it now. Because clearly during this pandemic, we are laying on the couch watching a lot of TV. 
and often bragging about it. But the pandemic aside, we are meant to be industrious, not idle, which is why mentally the pandemic is difficult for us. Because we want to be out doing things and we are conflicted about the fact that we cannot. Our attitude and effort set the tone for the future as far as our career is concerned. But this obviously affects not only our future career, but it affects our finances and it affects our family. Solomon is warning against laziness that leads to poverty. But keep in mind, Proverbs are general in nature. It means they are not true in every single circumstances, which means there are people who are poor, not because they are lazy, but because of circumstances outside of their control. It also means that there are people who are rich, not because they are hardworking, but because they have gotten an inheritance or something else. And so these are general statements. Again, there is much more wisdom that could be discussed here as it pertains to our vocation, but we need to move on to our third point, which is what I'm calling relational wisdom, vocational and now relational. And we're going to drop down to verse 25 to pick this up. Still in chapter 6, but verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can, walk, or, or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will repay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. So the third and final section we are dealing with is relational wisdom. And as you can see, it, this text is dealing with the physical aspect of relationships. We're not talking in general about dating or marriage or friendship. We are talking here about the physical aspects of our relationships. And again, our text is one-sided. Solomon is talking to his son and urging his son not to be swayed by certain women. But we are going to expand this to talk in general about any kind of sexual sin outside of marriage because that is where it is applied. And if you read the first nine chapters of Proverbs, you will find that this is a recurring theme. Now, you are most certainly aware that the physical relationship between a man and a woman within marriage has been and continues to be ordained and established by God. And because it was his idea, he has the right to establish boundaries, which he has done in his word. And these boundaries are for our good and, yes, even for our pleasure. You are also likely aware that outside of these boundaries, the good gifts that God has given us can then cause considerable damage, damage that is comprehensive. And by comprehensive, I mean not just physical harm, but emotional, financial, spiritual, and relational damage. Get this one area of our lives outside of the bounds of godly wisdom, and there is going to be a negative effect upon every other area of our life. And yet you also know, none of this is new information for you, you also know 
that many, many people outside and inside the church continue to disregard the wisdom of God relationally and therefore are reaping the consequences. Something they either don't know about or don't care, which is all the more reason why we must not only know the wisdom of God for our relationships, but we must convey that wisdom. We must pass that wisdom on to others, particularly our own children and grandchildren. Now, the gist of this text is, first of all, to beware of sexual temptation. The lust of the eyes, as the Bible describes it, is an ever-present and powerful temptation, something that all of us face to some degree. Now, the temptation itself is not a sin. If the mere temptation was a sin, then all of us would need to seclude ourselves far more than we're doing during this crisis. It is how we respond to the temptation that determines whether or not it becomes a sin. And so we must admit that the physical relationship outside of God's design is sinful, something our society is not willing to admit. And we must also acknowledge that even though we know it is sinful, it often entices us in its various forms to participate in it even though we know it's wrong. And therefore, we must wage war against it. But because of our strong desire, because of our sinful nature, and because of the prevalence of this temptation, it is a tough and ongoing battle to be sure. And one of the ways we fight this is to be reminded of the consequences. And that's what Solomon is doing for his son. Verse 27, can a man carry fire in his, at his chest and his clothes not be burned? Well, of course not. I mean, if you're carrying around fire right here, your clothes are going to catch on fire. And therefore, he says, the same is true when it comes to sexual sin and the negative consequences. In other words, you are not going to be the exception. You are not going to be the one who does get away with this. It will impact you and those whom you love, the consequences being far wider and greater than any of us can ever imagine or expect. And verse 32, we're almost done. Look at verse 32, makes it very clear. Those who commit sexual sin lack sense. And that's the opposite of wisdom. And they are actually destroying themselves. Though as you might expect, no one would recognize this in the moment. There are not degrees of sin, but there are degrees of the consequences of our sins. And that's why Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, warns them. He says, every other sin you commit is outside the body. But this is a sin that affects your own body. And don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, he says, glorify God with your body. Now, again, there is certainly much more that we could say in this category of relational wisdom, but our time is drawing to a close. But we must put guards in place in our lives to protect us from this temptation. And if you say to yourselves, I don't need any guards in this area of my life, then you are well on your way to discovering that you did need those guards. All of us need guards in place when it comes to this particular issue. Now, again, there are other areas we could discuss. This is not exhaustive, but I want to quit because I don't want to hear some of you quote Job 13 and verse 5 to me. You say, what is Job 13 and verse 5? Well, Job is replying to one of his friends and the so-called wisdom that his friends gave them, gave him. And he replies with these words, oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. You know, sometimes just being quiet is wisdom. 
So I leave you with this. This is not primarily about pursuing wisdom so that we can be known as wise. The pursuit of wisdom is ultimately a pursuit of Christ because Christ is the wisdom of God. So as we pursue Christ, we grow in our wisdom. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the opportunity we've had to look at these very critical areas of all of our lives, seeking to apply your wisdom to these areas. And I pray that you would give us wisdom to do that. And I pray that we would find that wisdom in you. Lord, all of this, these four sermons on wisdom are not done merely to, to help us along in life, though they will do that. It's so that we might be closer to you because you are wisdom incarnate. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.